Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. Joining me today is Ian Murray, Vice President for Strategy and Senior Fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, where he also directs the Center for Economic Freedom. His most recent book is The Socialist Temptation. Welcome to Free Thoughts, Ian. It's a delight to be with you today, Trevor. How is socialism doing right now in the world, I guess in both public opinion and in uh, actualization? Yeah, it's uh, it's in a, an interesting situation right now. Um, a, f- a few years ago, you know, back in the nineteen nineties, you know, we assumed that socialism was dead and buried. You know, um, socialist parties around the Western world had uh, had moved away from the classic Marxist uh, definition of socialism uh, towards you know something that could be you know best described, I suppose, as Blairism. You know, a sort of mild social democracy. Um, and then after the financial crisis, it sort of came back, you know, rose from the dead like uh, like a vampire. And uh, it's been uh, doing pretty well ever since. In fact, it's the, those social democratic parties uh, across Europe, for example, have been almost wiped out. And there's been a significant resurgence in... Uh, on, on the socialist left, whether it be you know, hardcore socialist communist parties like uh, Die Link in Germany, or whether it be a, a sort of new variant which is very much uh, envi- focused on the environment, uh, like the the Greens in a lot of European countries. So socialism is back, and uh, I think we are also seeing a sort of resurgence in something that could be described as socialist economic thought on the right uh, around the world as well. So it, this isn't your grandfather's socialism. It isn't really even your father's socialism, but it's, uh, it, 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 it's back in a new form. Clarify that on the question of the, the coming from the right. What, what sort of socialist tendencies do we see coming from the right? Well, this is um, a sort of a, a, a socialist economic paradigm that, um, uh, it, it, in some ways, is, is socialist. In other ways, it's a, it, it's a return to even pre-socialist thought, uh, mercantilist thought. It, it, it's something that uh, that generally finds uh, a lot of suspicion in the free market. You know, the, there's a suspicion that corporations aren't uh, aren't beneficial. To an economy, you know, they're out to try and uh, and, and exploit, uh, which is a very Marxist term, exploit uh, the ordinary working man, and we see that in a lot of conservative parties uh, around around the world today. You know, we certainly see it in the Republican Party in America, we see it in the Conservative Party in Britain, we see it even in the Liberal Party in, in Australia. Uh, it's um, it, it's a, a, an interesting phenomenon that. Uh, the, the, the Keynesian, if I may use that expression, Keynesian uh, thought, uh, economic thought, is really um, you know, gaining traction on, on uh, in conservative uh, political parties around the world. Well, if we were talking about Keynesianism as some variant of socialism and socialism coming from the left and the right and the Greens, it seems like we should probably step back and see if we can define this term because it is – it, it's one of those terms which, which can be useful, but might be overused by people all across the political spectrum to the point that it might not have much meaning. So, clarifying our terms would be helpful. Yeah, that that that, that that's an important uh, uh, proviso. The trouble is that m- many self-declared socialists these days 
don't actually agree on what socialism is. Uh, you know, the term has morphed considerably. You know, there used to be an accepted definition. It, it, was, it had its roots in, in, in Marxism. I, I, I could go into vol- voluntarist socialism and pre-Marxist forms of socialism. But, but generally, you know, for about 150 years, the, the, the accepted definition of socialism was you know, basically based around you know, workers' control of uh, uh, the economy, the, the, the commanding heights of the economy, if you will, uh, you know, the, the means of production, uh, commodity distribution and exchange. Uh, that was what socialism used to mean. Today, uh, it's, it, it has changed quite a bit. Uh, and, you know, and I think we can trace a lot of this to the influence of the new left in uh, America, especially in the, the, the 1960s and 70s. And they introduced uh, you know, the, some new concepts into, into what socialism means. Uh, you know, it became uh, a, a means of addressing uh, power disparities. So uh, socialism became all about identifying those power disparities and trying to, uh, trying to uh, uh, rectify them. You know, which is how uh, you, you these days you have a, a socialism which is uh, very much concentrated on things like uh, gender and racial uh, uh, power disparities. And so the economic uh, form of socialism, even as it uh, uh, starts to rise uh, on the conservative right, uh, is, isn't nearly as important as it used to be on, uh, on the left. So this is all part of a, of a realignment, a political realignment in the world away from economic issues, I think. And it, the word is used by so the American right. Uh, it's used quite often to describe many, many, many things that are very, that are different from your classic, you know, Soviet style socialism. And then interestingly, it's also used by people on the left, some, sometimes self-described socialists, like AOC, for example, to describe a bunch of things too, that, that if you had, you know, a healthcare system like Norway, it's socialism, or if you, sometimes I hear people say that things like police and fire are a form of socialism. So it seems, again, both sides are trying to expand the definition for their own purposes. I think that's very much the case. I mean, the, these days, trying to define socialism is a bit like nailing uh, jelly to the wall. But the, um, uh, you know, the, the, it, it's very interesting that, um, you know, for, for instance, on the left, at the same time as uh, uh, somebody like AOC will say, well, oh, we just want to be like uh, Norway, we just want to be like Sweden, we just want to have uh, an expanded welfare state and so on, they, they are at the same time attacking uh, a capitalism which countries like Norway and Sweden have accepted as a vital part of their economy. In fact, uh, having a vibrant, uh, in many ways much less regulated than America's uh, capitalist sector is what allows uh, the, the, the Scandinavian countries to pay for their welfare state. So, you know, so, so, so there's quite a bit of speaking out of both sides of the mouth when it comes to this, uh, the, the, this sort of definition of socialism. How has America flirted with socialism in the past? You, you have an interesting discussions of, you know, we have a, we have a history, of course, coming out of the Soviet Union, but uh, the concept seems to really take foot with accusations too of socialism during the New Deal initially. 
yeah, I mean, you can you can look at the progressive era and think, you know, perhaps that was actually a, uh, a, a an American variant uh, of, of, of socialism, perhaps a bit more social democratic in the in the form that we've just described, one that accepted cla- uh, capitalism uh, as as part of the uh, of the economy, but uh, looked to, uh, to 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 use government uh, to make people's lives better. Uh, you know, the, the progressive era seems to be um, that uh, that that sort of uh, you know v- variant of socialism. But then, when it comes to the, the New Deal, you see a much more uh, active government, uh, a government that uh, really wants to suppress uh, certain aspects uh, of, of capitalism. You know, especially when it comes to employment and uh, labour. Uh, uh, issues. Uh, they, they they very much want to. Uh, the, the the New Dealers very much want to to get uh, capitalism under control uh, in, in, in that sense. And you know, it, it's no surprise that uh, that the opponents of the New Deal would use the socialism word uh, all the time about uh, about the New Deal. The New Dealers rejected it, uh, of course, but. Uh, but I think you know the, the, there are arguments of, on both sides. But again, I think this is part of a sort of American variant of uh, of, of socialism uh, that didn't follow the way the socialism developed uh, in Europe, uh, whether it be on the on the east side or the west side of the Iron Curtain. And then getting to the uh, British socialism, which uh, are probably my favorite chapters in the book because your own personal experiences with this, but. Uh, it, it is somewhat surprising that it is. I mean, I wasn't, of course, in England at the time, nor have I ever lived in England. But that Churchill loses the election after the war so so decidedly, even though he apparently had, was quite popular during the war. But we have this entire switch to some pretty extreme forms of, of socialism that I think a lot of people don't realize what what the UK, what Britain was like between about 1948 and about 1980. Yeah, I mean, if if you look at it, even after the First World War, uh, the, the, there was a, a turn to centralization after the after the First World War. Um, you know, uh, David Lloyd George uh, said, "We we must make the country a, ho- a home fit for for heroes to live in," uh, and uh, you know, move the Liberal Party uh, away from being um, a, uh, a a classically liberal party to being a much more of a social democratic type party, but then it, it, you know during the Second World War, that basically everything was nationalized. Uh, central planning was the order of the day, and people saw that and thought, "Well, it worked. It beat Hitler. Um, why can't we? Uh, why can't we use it in peacetime?" And so there, there was very much, especially amongst army voters, uh, you know, the the, the 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 votes that came in from uh, from the army um, were uh, well, the, the armed forces in general. Uh, were very much in favour of the Labour Party in 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 that immediate post-war election, and uh, the, the the Labour Party was standing on a a manifesto that promised uh, nationalisation of uh, of of all industry uh, and uh, uh, introduction of centrally planning proce- central planning processes into the use of private property and things like that, and uh, people voted for it overwhelmingly, and so uh, the Conservative opposition. 
just sort of accepted this and uh, put up a, a, a sort of half-hearted defense of things like uh, private industry and private uh, private property, uh, That, uh, but going along with the nationalization of uh, m- most of heavy industry uh, in Britain, uh, transportation industry, uh, shipbuilding, coal mining, extractive industries, all that sort of thing. Um, you know, the, the Conservative Party accepted that for uh, almost 40 years. And uh, you know, that, that, that was the, the, the accepted uh, political settlement, was that Britain was a social democratic country and was going to remain so. How far did it go? Because we don't think, it's not like the UK went to, you know, Soviet-style socialism in that period of time. Uh, the NHS, which I want to get to, uh, was, of course, created at that time. But you talk about the unions and how bad that got. Uh, inter- but are unions themselves a form of socialism right, that we should be concerned with? Or maybe the kind of unionization that was practiced at that time when you were growing up? Yeah, I mean, what's interesting is that um, just a, a, a side note on, on on unions is that union union law uh, took very different directions in America and uh, and, and Britain. In in America, uh, the uh, the, the, there was the uh, National Labor Relations Act, but at the same time there was the Fair Labor Pl- Employment Standards Act, and so uh, it was employment was very heavily regulated for, from the centre. In Britain, they basically left that up to the unions. Um, they they left uh, the um, uh, you know the, the negotiating uh, sorry negotiations over employment contracts were, were very much left in, in, in the unions' hands, and uh, we're going side by side with the nationalisation of heavy industry, this made the unions extremely powerful. Um, you know, so, so, so the National Union of Mine Workers, uh, for instance, became uh, one of the most powerful uh, forces in the country because it could uh, basically turn off the, uh, the supply of fuel to the power stations and therefore you know, cut all, uh, all electric power uh, you know, just on a whim. Uh, the you know the 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 the, uh, the uh, auto workers union, for instance, um, bec- uh, could basically stop production of uh, automobiles. Uh, you know they, they became incredibly powerful, uh, and uh, it, it was this realization that uh, that the unions were running the country because of the presence of nationalized industry, just as much as the government was. That uh, that eventually led to uh, a major backlash against uh, against uh, the social democratic settlement that was so union focused. So we have an idea of kind of different variants of what socialism looks like in different ways, and again, it's a it's a broad definition. But but that now we get into this question of the temptation of socialism, which is the title of your book. Uh, it seems to me I I understand why people are tempted by socialism. It's not, it's not strange that people are tempted by it, but I, I don't know if you have a personal theory. I mean, so, there's obviously the, I like free stuff, but there's also the, I like guarantees of various things that I, that I may not be guaranteed by other systems. Well, it, it, you know, but, but one of the theses of my books is that uh, socialism actually speaks of, uh, a, a, a plays a very good game when it comes to uh, appealing to basic American values. Um, you know, the, 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 when you get down to it, you know, there the, are the various uh, theories about this, but uh, 
uh, one theory that we at the Competitive Enterprise Institute uh, you know, subscribe to is that there are th- uh, three basic uh, American values. Uh, uh, the, the value of fairness, uh, the value of freedom, and the val- value of community. You know, there, there are technical names for this, but, but, but that's essentially what, the, the, what those values are. And socialism speaks to all three of those. It speaks to fairness, you know, that, that uh, you won't be exploited under a, so, uh, a socialist system. You know, you, you'll, you, uh, th- th- there will be equity, uh, you know, not, not just in opportunity, but in outcome. So you're going to, uh, you are going to be treated fairly. It speaks to freedom. Uh, as I say, you're not going to be exploited. You, uh, you will be free from, uh, from the, uh, uh, the, 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 the the constrictions of a, a, a boss, you will be uh, free uh, from the the, the the issue of uh, you know, needing uh, health insurance. Um, you, you know, you, you can you you will be free to live your life the way you want to uh, want to live it because the, the state will guarantee certain basic standards for you. And then it speaks to community. You know, it it says that uh, that, that it, it will maintain. Uh, Jobs for you in your community. It will ensure that your community uh, continues in the way that it uh, the, 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 that it's set up now, except free from all the bad elements of it. Uh, so, because it speaks to all three of these values, it can be tempting for basically any American, uh, you know, whichever one of those values uh, the the American thinks of as being primary, it can tempt uh, any American as a result of that, and that's why you know. Socialism is so insidious because when you actually look at what socialism does, it actually corrupts all three of those values. Maybe the the question, kind of going back to what it is, because take healthcare. Uh, I understand the social, socialist temptation of healthcare, especially in the in the following way that many people getting sick in many different ways are not their fault. Now, there are, you know, if you smoke and things like this, absolutely. But if you get struck by lightning or hit by a car or you happen to be the unlucky person who gets a very rare disease, that does not seem fair. And so the idea that we should be taking care of those people. And as far as I can tell, if you go to Norway or talk to Norwegians or Finns or even a bunch of Brits with the NHS, those systems do that. Uh, They at least say, you have cancer Let's say it's no fault of your own. You you got hit by a car. We're not going to leave you without medical care. So they're not complete failures. I think the American right often sells these things as total failures, but there's some successes. They do provide health care, and they do provide it very broadly. If you look at uh, the National Health Service, for instance, uh, it is extremely good when it comes to uh, uh, the accident and emergency care. Um, you know, the, the, uh, if, if, if you get hit by a car or something, uh, break your leg, you will be patched up and you will be patched up quickly, reasonably quickly and, uh, and, and well. Uh, where the National Health Service starts to uh, underperform the American system, and, and, and it's not a binary, uh, where, the, where the National Health Service underperforms a lot of European systems is in chronic conditions. Uh, because there, the uh, you know the, the the lack of various signals leads to uh, uh, leads to over provision of some care, under provision of, uh, of others. Um, a 
you know, my mother, for instance, uh, her, her hip uh, uh, was replaced in her 50s. Uh, she's now uh, well into her 80s and probably needs another, uh, probably needs a hip replacement uh, so that she can actually regain mobility. But she's too old for the, uh, for the National Health Service. It's not viewed as a priority uh, to replace the hips of an, an almost 90-year-old woman. So, uh, you know, so, so while the National Health Service it definitely does provide some certain very good, a certain amount of very, very good care, it also underperforms in, in a lot of areas. And if you look at uh, a lot of the European systems that outperform both the, uh, the, the uh, American system and the, the more centralized, you know, uh, British or Canadian systems, they have a lot of private involvement. Uh, the, the, you know, there are a lot of private hospitals, a lot of private doctors, uh, a lot of private insurance. Not not as much as in the US, but uh, but nevertheless, the, there's very much a, a role for the private sector there. And you know, when when we think of the of the health service as binary, either single payer, uh, completely government controlled, or uh, complete for, uh, com- complete uh, you know, private provision. Uh, then uh, you know th- th- that's not the right way to look at it. There are, there are a whole different whole number of models out there, um, most of which uh, have a significant role for the private sector. That seems to be the trade-off too. That whereas the access is broader for certain people in the NHS, that and its shortcomings are chronic care and and things that are considered unnecessary, like your mother's hip, or at least not necessary at this point. The, on the other side, for our healthcare system, you know, we might be good at those things, but bad at other things. So, in terms of the kind of values that people want to promote with their healthcare system, and they say, "Well, I prefer the access, the broader access to the specialization," and we could say, "Well, we prefer the specialization to the broader access." Uh, is there one of those that is correct that we should view as correct, um, or or should we look at them? within this socialist lens that you're talking about and say, no, there's a fundamental problem with the way it's done in the NHS and other similar systems. Well, this, uh, you know, the, the problem of, of the NHS gets to uh, uh, a, a more broader problem of, uh, of socialist systems, which is essentially that they empower bureaucrats. And uh, one of the issues with the, with the NHS is the, uh, the, the presence of healthcare bureaucrats. Um, yeah, there, there, there have been many reforms o- uh, over the years since uh, uh, since Margaret Thatcher first um, uh, f- first attempted to reform the the, the, the National Health Service, uh, and they, but they've all fo- focused on uh, the role of bureaucratization, and uh, you know the, the, uh, some of the, the more successful reforms depower uh, those bureaucrats. But this is a, a sort of generic problem with with socialism in. Uh, at least economic socialism, with uh, how how it approaches the the, the, the management of industry, which is that it, it empowers bureaucrats who are uh, essentially um, removed from both the production side and the consumption side, uh, and have their own incentives uh, to uh, to do things the way they find uh, convenient uh, and attractive or ideologically attractive. Uh, and as a result, uh, you know, the, 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 the signals from the production side and the consumption side are muted by the presence of the bureaucrats. And that's, uh, that's the biggest issue with, with, with uh, socialism uh, when it comes to 
the provision of services. One of the things that you have not mentioned, or some of the things that you haven't mentioned yet, so is are actually socialist countries. Uh, North Korea being the most prominent, possibly, but we have Venezuela would be another example. Just in terms of currently existing, we could go back in time, of course, and talk about Mao and the Soviet Union and Pol Pot, which you do discuss in the book. But one of the common things that you hear about someplace like Venezuela or maybe North Korea is that they're not really socialism in some sense. Uh, totalitarianism, authoritarianism, but from people who are avowed socialists, like say people who write for the the Jacobin uh, thing, they often say this is not real socialism and instead point to Norway, for example. Uh, is it fair to call those systems real socialism? Well, actually, what, what, uh, there's a very interesting phenomenon here uh, that, 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 that applies in virtually all these cases. And I'm indebted to uh, Christian Nemitz of the Institute of Economic Affairs in London for identifying this cycle. What happens when uh, a socialist, a new, uh, there's, there's a revolution or a, a sweeping election result or whatever, uh, you know, something we'll probably see in, in Chile in the, in the very near future, is that, um, that, that uh, leftist commentators say, yes, here, at long last, we have the, the, the socialist dawn. Uh, there's going to be a genuine socialist country uh, set up. It's not going to make the mistakes of all those other, uh, all those other countries in in the past. Here it is. Socialism is here at last. Then, because of the internal contradictions of socialism, you know the role of bureaucrats we just discussed, other things, uh, eventually the wheels start to come off. And at that point, those same commentators uh, say. Uh, start moving to uh, uh, to uh, making excuses, uh, you know, saying, "Oh, it's it's the fault of C- the CIA or or internal saboteurs or wreckers," uh, is a, co- a common phrase, uh, and there'll be a lot of what aboutery. And uh, yeah, yeah, so 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 the country's uh, going to hell in the handbasket. But have you looked at America recently? Uh, you know that sort of thing. And then finally, when uh, when the wheels have come off. And, you know, in the worst cases, there may be millions dead. Uh, that's when those same commentators who said new socialism is about to arrive, they turn around and say, no, that wasn't real socialism. And so the, the, there's this identifiable cycle that, 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 that happens, which essentially gives socialism a get-out-of-jail-free card, because any, any socialism that isn't perfect is written off as not real socialism. Well, in their defense, though, they will usually say something like democratic socialism. Um, uh, I forget his name who wrote the Socialist Manifesto, who writes, I think, for Jacobin. I mean, that's a big part of what he's talking about. So from their standpoint, uh, you know, creeping authoritarianism or totalitarianism, if you pull away from the rule of the people where they get a voice in, in this stuff via labor unions and voting and a communitarian type of stuff and you give it all to some dictator, that's not what they've been asking for. They didn't ask for Pol Pot. Like, you know, Marx didn't ask for Pol Pot. Marx didn't ask for Stalin in his writings. And socialists who write today, they're not asking for those people. So when they say that's not what I was asking for, I mean, we have that's that's true. They weren't asking for those people. Yeah, but this is the inter- one of those internal contradictions of, of socialism that that, that, I, that I was talking about. Uh, you know, when you think about democratic control over uh, over things, it, it just takes a, a moment's thought to, to realize that the people can't uh, can't control uh, all aspects of the economy. So they have to delegate. They delegate that 
to the bureaucrats. They delegate that to commissars. They delegate it to apparatchiks. These people have their own uh, agendas. Uh, you know, the, the, the economics uh, school of public choice uh, tells us that these are people too, and that they, the, you know, they will engage in things like empire building and so on. And uh, as a result, you know, the, the, the idea of democratic control of, uh, of, of any industry or any service uh, ceases to be democratic control and becomes bureaucratic control at, at, at best. And as a result, socialism inevitably, and socialists really enjoy the term inevitable, uh, uh, socialism inevitably uh, you know, reduces to rule, by, uh, to rule by bureaucrats and ceases to be democratic. And so if you're saying, if you as a socialist are saying, well, uh, I, I, I don't know, I, I, I believe in democratic control, not bureaucratic control, not, and certainly not dictators, then you're not uh, taking into account what, uh, what what the, um, the the inevitable ramifications are of an attempt to put uh, democratic control over uh, over the industry or service? Do we have to accept a similar critique as free market champions, uh, cap champions of capitalism? Because we're often saying, well, you know, that's not real capitalism. We say that's crony capitalism. You know, look at all these industries and how they're you know. They depend upon subsidies or some type of protectionism, and we have very few things that we can point to. Hong Kong is our one of our favorite. Look at Hong Kong. Look at the growth of Hong Kong, and then we say, "Well, <laughs> you know, this isn't real capitalism. Real capitalism hasn't been tried, or has it not been tried?" And then we have to accept the fact that maybe the tendency of capitalist systems is to produce a kind of corruption in the form of crony capitalism because of the same type of drives that bureaucrats in the socialist system have, which is they're trying to secure their privileges, secure the protection of their industries and the protection of their livelihoods at the expense of others. And that seems to be empirically the tendency of capitalist systems too. Yeah, I, I think that uh, that's right to a, 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 a certain extent. I mean, no system is perfect and uh, humanity is fallible. And you know, the, the, those are great insights from, uh, you know, from free market uh, economists. But if if you look at, for instance, the, the the alleged returns to an industry from cronyism or from protectionism, uh, then you uh, and you look at how much lobbying uh, they do uh, for those protections, uh, you have to wonder why isn't there more of it? Um, you know, the, 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 um, for, for, for all uh, for all the faults of, of current American capitalism. Uh, it's not as cronyist or as protectionist as you'd think it would be if cronyism and protectionism actually provided uh, the returns that uh, that people say they do. So I, th I, I think that you know that there is um, you know we we often think about the vices of capitalism and those the ones you've described are certainly there. But I think you know that there's also room for a theory of of capitalist virtue. Which is not engaging in these uh, in in these cronyisms and actually going out and, uh, and and listening to market signals and providing uh, value to people. Um, yeah, th there's a lot more of that goes on there than you'd think there would be if cronyism was actually a, a good way of lining your pockets. So I think you know we, we should be a bit more uh, appreciative of of the virtue of capitalists. Uh, even though we rightly condemn uh, their vices. One one movement you mentioned briefly, but I, I think is important in this story, is 
Greens or environmentalism. Uh, now, that's not necessarily in any way socialist, uh, but there seems to be a connection, at least in practice, between many people who are self-described as green or as an environmentalist and believing in, in socialist type of policies. Uh, what? Why is there that connection, uh, even if it's not necessary? And how? And then follow up to that is, and how dangerous is this sort of environmentalist movement from the socialist temptation standpoint? Well, I think you know one of the uh, the temptations of socialism that we uh, we've alluded to but haven't really discussed yet is the uh, you know the, what Hayek called the fatal conceit, the idea that you can actually uh, centrally plan uh, you know the, a, a, an economy for, for, for the best results. And the fatal conceit seems to be fundamental to modern versions of environmentalism. You know, there, there, there is a belief that there's a right level of, uh, of emissions. There's a, uh, a belief that, there's, uh, you know, that, that, that you can control uh, industry so that you can control uh, pollution. The current version of environmentalism, which is, as you say, isn't the, necessarily the, the, the only one. The free market environmentalism has a, a long and story pedigree uh, even if it isn't particularly prominent amongst self-described environmentalists these days, uh, but th- 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 there is this belief that, uh, that that you can actually centrally plan uh, not just uh, a country's economy, uh, not just a local economy, but the global economy uh, to uh, to optimize uh, for the uh, for, for, for the planet. Uh, and that's um, a, a very seductive temptation uh, that um, you know, a, a lot of a lot of countries. And again, you know, we talked about socialism and the right. Uh, uh, the uh, Conservative Party in Great Britain has taken on board environmentalism as part of its part of its very fibre. It seems at the moment, uh, you know, the the, the, the uh, it it has some of the most ambitious. Uh, environmental planning goals uh, of any country, uh, and that's the Conservative Party there. Uh, so the, the, you know, the, 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 this idea that you can control uh, uh, control the emissions, control the, the, the production of, of industry, so that uh, so, so that the environment uh, is protected is uh, you know is a very seductive one, and uh, you know it, it, it's certainly the dominant mo- uh, mode of environmentalism at the moment. But you're not against people voting for certain things that that they for environmental values that they hold that they prefer you know more green space over less green space or they prefer to protect endangered species versus do not protect endangered species. I mean, environmental preferences are fine; they don't have to be destructive in the way that you've described. Oh, that, that, that's very much the case. In fact, uh, you know, what, one of the things that I I, I point to uh, in, uh, regularly in my writings on the, on the environment. Is the presence of something called the environmental Kuznets curve, which is the idea that um, as uh, as uh, economies develop, uh, they initially get uh, they go from a, a, a state of uh, a state of pristine nature, as it were. Uh, they, they but they they start to um, uh, they start to use extractive industries. They start to uh, produce emissions, and you know, the, the, uh, pollution tends to get dumped uh, you know, wherever it's produced. Uh, you know, the, uh, and so the environment degrades as an economy uh, starts uh, starts to grow, but then it reaches a point where 
uh, environmental uh, uh, environmental uh, protection itself becomes a desired good, and at that point, people start paying for it. Uh, you know, they they don't mind paying extra so that the pollution is not dumped uh, in, in in a nearby river. Uh, they, they don't mind paying extra so that people don't live in shanty towns that that, that, are, that are essentially built on on huge piles of trash. Uh, you know, people. People actually value the environment that way. And so uh, as an economy get, goes over this uh, sort of tipping point on, on, on the curve, uh, you know, it, it, uh, the economy both uh, improves and environmental protection improves. And so you know, and that's something we see time and again uh, in, uh, uh, in, in developed economies, that you know, the, 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 the richer you are, the cleaner you are. You know, uh, it's uh, you know it, it, it it's an it's important to bear in mind that uh, that uh, you know th- this this happens uh, all over uh, that has has happened all over the developed world and will almost certainly happen uh, in the developing world as well. Is socialism really that big of concern in America? Uh, we've talked about the places where these parties are are large and they're growing, and you mentioned that you know, even in the Conservative Party in Britain, they're very, very pro-environment, different regulations. And of course, there are very committed and self-described socialist parties throughout Europe and, and the OECD world. But here, we could always point to you know the favorite bugaboo of the American right, someone like AOC, who at different times has described herself as a socialist or a democratic socialist and some of the others in Congress. But this is a pretty small faction who are themselves pushed aside by their own party, Nancy Pelosi does not want AOC controlling the messaging of the Democrat Party. So, is it really that big of a concern? Well, I think if if you look at uh, the popularity of socialism amongst younger people, uh, then you have you have to think: you know, is is this just uh, a, a manifestation of uh, the, the uh, quotation? I think in, that, that was that's often attributed to Winston Churchill, which is: if you're not a communist by the time you're twenty, there's something wrong with your uh, heart. If you're still a communist by the time you're thirty, there's something wrong with your head. Yeah, it 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 could be that, or it may be that uh, the, the the that socialism is actually uh, you know uh, uh, viewed as uh, as an alternative, uh, a viable alternative to a failed American capitalist system. Yeah, and, and if you look at the, uh, the the way the polls have uh, worked when it comes to socialism, you know socialism began to uh, to really reappear, especially amongst young people after the financial crisis, and the idea that there's something seriously wrong with capitalism started to spread, and people started looking for an alternative. Yeah, so um, yeah, so, so so I think that it may be that that socialism is viewed as an attractive alternative. Uh, by enough young people for us, uh, you know, and, and these days, you know, the people who were uh, twenty at the time of the financial crisis are now in in their thirties and seem to be, uh, according to the polls, seem to be still attracted to it uh, just as much. So, you know, I, I think that you know that that this sort of groundswell that socialism is something we should look at uh, is still there. It's certainly not a majority. Uh, amongst the, the the American people, but I think people like AOC are sort of the vanguard, uh, as it were, of uh, you know a, 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 a wing of politics that the views socialism as a viable alternative. How should we approach this differently then, as champions of free markets and trade tested betterment? Uh, 
we need to communicate possibly in some way to people who are flirting with socialism. Uh, sometimes I you know, sometimes one of the problems is, is that the people who actually lived under oppressive socialist regimes, you know, are dying off people who actually experienced the Soviet union or, or the Eastern Bloc. Um, so now we, we need, we need to relearn these lessons, but how do we help these lessons get learned? Well, one of the, the, the great things uh, about uh, America traditionally is that, you know, we, we've always been a country that's uh, welcoming to, to immigrants like, like myself. And, you know, a lot of those immigrants come from, uh, come from social, uh, countries that have uh, uh, experimented with uh, socialism. And if you look at the, uh, you know, the, the, the opinions of socialism amongst recent immigrants, they tend to be very down on it. Um, you know, much uh, much less in favor of socialism than their white or African American peers. Uh, you know, so, so, so although uh, people like myself who lived under Western socialism are getting a bit long in the tooth, um, you know, there, there are lots of people who have actually lived under socialism uh, and know its limitations uh, in, in, in America today. So I think you know, more of those voices should be heard. Uh, it should be heard as as we're uh, as we try to uh, uh, to, to uh, look at the uh, what the actual effects of socialism are, uh, and I think we can also do a, a much better job of speaking to the underlying values. I mean, one of the the biggest problems with the free market movement in America, the pro capitalist movement in America, is that we talk about with uh, about economic statistics a lot. You know, we, we'll, we'll talk about trade balances and GDP, and you know, trade balances don't matter, and uh, and, and things like that. But we're, we're not actually talking uh, the language of values. And you know, as as I said earlier, you know, you know that uh, socialism does a very good job of talking the language of values. And what we really need is, you know, to promote the free market in terms of those values as well. Yeah, you know, pointing out that socialism actually corrupts those values. That. Uh, it's it, it's not democratic. It's bureaucratic, and uh, yeah, and and that ends up being unfair to everyone. Uh, it, it it won't promote your freedom. It will reduce your freedom, and through through the use of you know various central government uh, 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 planning processes, it will destroy your community. So there are things that we can do to uh, to uh, to make. Um, uh, to, to talk that language of values in trying to communicate about socialism uh, that, that we're just not doing a particularly good job of at the moment. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at libertarianism.org.